Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journey beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology television during TV's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia and background on the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Today I'll be discussing The Four of Us Are Dying. It's the 13th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on New Year's Day, 1960. I'll also have a bonus review of the 1976 film Logan's Run, whose source material was co-written by the writer of the short story that The Four of Us Are Dying was the basis for. As always, I'm going to start my review with an episode summary, so this will be extremely spoiler-filled, so if you haven't watched the episode yet and don't want to be spoiled... Uh, go and watch the episode and then come back. It's available on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and all that stuff. Arch Hammer is a con man who can change his face to make it look like anyone he chooses. He walks into a nightclub where he impersonates deceased trumpeter Johnny Foster in order to steal Foster's girlfriend, a sultry singer. Hammer then pays a visit to Mr. Pennell, impersonating murdered gangster Virgil Sterig in order to extort money out of Pennell. The man who had Sterig killed, Pennell sends his men after Hammer. Trying to escape down an alley, Hammer changes his face to one he sees on a poster of boxer Andy Marshak. But, thinking he is in the clear at a street newsstand, he runs into Marshak's father, who mistakes him for the son who broke his mother's heart and ruined a young girl's life. Hammer pushes the old man out of the way and returns to his hotel room. A detective comes to the hotel to pick him up for questioning at the police station. In order to escape from the policeman in a revolving door, Hammer assumes Marshak's appearance again. But on the street, he again bumps into Marshak's father, who pulls a gun on him. Hammer tries to show the old man he is not who he thinks he is, but before he can concentrate and change, the old man shoots him. As Hammer lies dying, his face shifts from one person to another until he dies wearing his own face. All right, this episode had several stars, uh, obviously, given the content of the episode. Uh, first up is Harry Towns. Uh, he played Arch Hammer in his, in his uh, regular form. Um, Harry Towns appeared in one other episode of The Twilight Zone. That's season two's Shadow Play. He also appeared in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, two episodes of One Step Beyond, and one episode of The Outer Limits. So he's not really a stranger to fans of anthology science fiction series. He has a lot. He had a lot of TV credits, and uh, an interesting piece of trivia about him is that he became an Episcopalian uh, minister in the seventies, and he still had some acting credits well into the early eighties. So I thought that was just kind of interesting. You don't really see someone semi-retire from acting to become a minister. Appearing as Verge Sterig is uh, Philip Pine. This uh, was one of two episodes of The Twilight Zone that he appeared in. Uh, we'll next see him in Season four's The Incredible World of Harry... Uh, 
<laughs> I almost said Harrison Ford. The Incredible World of Horace Ford. <laughs> uh, he also appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits, uh, two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow, one episode of Science Fiction Theater, and one episode of One Step Beyond. He was uh, known as a dark-browed, shady-looking character actor. Uh, he played a lot of serious-minded professionals and assorted uh, menacers and mobsters, uh, mostly on TV during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he's he's most remembered for uh, a role that he had in the original Star Trek TV series uh, as the evil Colonel Green. And playing Johnny Foster is Ross Martin. This also was one of two episodes of The Twilight Zone he appeared in. He'll We'll see him again in Season 4's Death Ship. And he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond. And uh, this was an interesting piece of trivia about him. He was an accomplished musician. He, he mastered the violin, I guess, at like age 8. And uh, played solo with a junior symphony orchestra. As Andy Marshak is Don Gordon. He's actually... as far as I can tell, he's actually still alive now. Um, he was in two episodes of The Twilight Zone, this one and season five's The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross. He actually played the titular character in that episode. He also appeared in two episodes of The Outer Limits. And uh, another piece of interesting trivia is that he joined the Navy during World War II after Pearl Harbor. And he served on board both the USS Saratoga and the USS Yorktown. And to round out the cast, uh, Peter Bracco, played Mr. Marshak. Once again, this is uh, one of two episodes of The Twilight Zone that this actor appeared in. He will talk about him again in Season 3's Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. And he also had a role in The Twilight Zone movie, as well as one episode of The Outer Limits. This was interesting as well. Uh, he was a liberal-minded individual, and he was briefly blacklisted during the McCarthy era. But it didn't hurt his career in the long run. He actually went on to... Um, his credits included Spartacus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Writer for this episode is Rod Serling. It was based on a short story by George Clayton Johnson, uh, who in early 1959 wrote a short story called All of Us Are Dying. It was about a guy who appears to people only as whomever they most want to see in the world. Uh, in the story, his downfall came when he goes to a gas station and goes to a gas station and the attendant recognizes him as a man he's wanted to kill for 10 years. After he wrote the story, he sent it to an agent who changed the name to Rubberface. The agent then sent it to Serling, who actually liked the original title a lot and liked the idea. So he bought it and changed the title to The Four of Us Are Dying and adapted it into a story of his own. A little bit of background on George Clayton Johnson. He was a friend of Charles Beaumont, who wrote Perchance to Dream. And he actually just recently passed away on uh, Christmas Day of last year, uh, 2015. Um, this was his first credit for The Twilight Zone, but he'd go on to be one of Twilight Zone's most respected writers. Uh, he wrote four episodes of the series, including season two's Penny for Your Thoughts, which is the next one we'll discuss him in. Uh, he also wrote two short stories that were adapted into the Twilight Zone episodes, including season one's uh, Execution, and he had one story by credit in the episode 90 Years Without Slumbering. As relatively little as he contributed to the Twilight Zone, like it's not, I mean, he contributed quite a bit, but it still says something that he is one of the more recognizable names, or that he is one of the recognizable names from the, from the credits of writers. Director for this episode is John Brom 
who previously directed the classic episode Time Enough at Last and also Judgment Night. This is, of course, the third of 12 episodes he uh, directed of the of the Twilight Zone. The next we'll talk about him is in the episodes Mirror Image and A Nice Place to Visit. All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into my review of the episode and my feelings as a first-time viewer of the episode. Okay, so I was immediately taken with the scene with the mirror at the beginning of the episode where we're shown his his ability to change faces. And I just thought it was incredibly clever because he's, he's standing in front of a mirror, shaving with a cigarette in his mouth, and the camera pans over and shows his reflection, which is another face, which obviously it's just someone on the other side of a wall with an opening so that it's not an actual reflection. But it's all one continuous take as he shaves and then the camera pans down as he puts the cigarette in the ashtray, then pans back up to another face. It's just very fluid and very, very clever, a, a very clever an efficient um, special effect, if you, if you want to call it that. I just thought it was very clever, and it really brought me into it and made me really interested in, in seeing how the story would progress with this character, with this unique ability. And then before that, and then a couple times throughout the rest of the episode, we see him walking around outside, and it's shot from, like, skewed angles. And I don't know if that's to give us more of an illusion of it actually being outside, because I get the, I get the sense that it was kind of a back lot with... with or, um, just a set that was made to look like it was outdoors, but it's vibrant. It's got a ton of neon signs. It's got it. I mean, it's really well, well created. And, and there's some, there's some extras here and there that are doing things. It was just all shot from the skewed angle, kind of from the floor up. And I don't know what the effect or what the intentional effect was, but I thought that it was handled really well. And I, it, I really enjoyed it. Now, as for the plot of this episode, I I wouldn't say that I struggled with it. Although, yeah, I w- did pretty much struggle with it um, throughout it. But I think that part of my issue with this is that it's not very clear what exactly Arch Hammer is doing or what he's planning on doing. Because Serling, in his opening narration, references that he has a master plan to destroy some lives. So when he goes from that to impersonating this musician that was killed in an auto accident, and he goes he goes to the nightclub, speaks to uh, the musician's girlfriend, and you can tell that he's, you know, he's basically exploit, exploiting the mourner. And it, it's it's a little... It's a little dark, really, because he's he's telling her that he wants to run away with her and to meet him at the at the train station and they'll make their escape and everything. And then as he leaves, he says to himself, what? Why not a beautiful dame? Never had a dish like that. Why shouldn't I? It's it's disturbing because he's kind of talking himself up to what is essentially raping her, honestly. And the disconnect with me is that I don't. The first time I saw this, because I've I've seen it a few times now, the first time I saw it though, it just it it made me wonder, are we supposed to are we supposed to infer that he killed the musician? Because going into it from after having heard Serling say that that this character has a master plan, I'm thinking that all of these people that he's impersonating are either going to be 
people that wronged him or people connected to people that he, that wronged him or that it was going to be some big revenge story or that um, these were all going to be interconnected and he was going to basically put together a plan for something. But the musician's girlfriend kind of seems really disconnected from that um, from, from that idea set in place from the opening narration. And I just think it it would have been better for me if there was if there were some indication that Arch had killed the musician so that he could get the girl, but there isn't. And I mean, I don't know if that's the intention. I I, I doubt that that's the that that we're supposed to read into it that way. But I just feel like it would have been a little bit more connected for me if he had done that. Like maybe when he says that he's never had never had someone that beautiful, and he's talking himself up to being with her maybe that could be connected that he saw the musician and then decided to kill the musician and, and take his girlfriend or, or something to that effect, or maybe not even kill the musician, just see the girlfriend and capitalize on it. Uh, their relationship. I, I don't know. Then after that, there's a musician in the bar that notices Arch slash Johnny and he approaches him in the street and once once the lighting changes and the musician notices that that arch is arch uh the music that plays it it's like we're seeing it's like it's intending to be played during the first time we see arch's ability and i it kind of made me wonder if the script originally opened with that scene with the musician's girlfriend and maybe the street scene was supposed to be the reveal of his ability. I mean, I can't find anything at all to corroborate that theory or anything. It's just how it played to me in the moment. And I mean, maybe that would have been a more effective way because we're shown granted. Yes, I do love the mirror, the mirror scene and how we're shown his ability early on during the narration, but it would have been really interesting if, we were brought into this episode with this man sitting down in a nightclub talking to this woman who thinks that he's dead and he says that they're running away together and then he goes outside and he has a different face. Like I thought, I, I think that that would have been, that would have been a more interesting in, introduction to Arch's story. Um, of course, then that is just basically just throwing out the entire plot, <laughs> the entire plot that we got and it would, ha- it would need to change the dynamic and the through line of what Arch is doing. But I just think that that was a missed opportunity. So after Arch speaks to Johnny's girlfriend, he changes his face into that of Virgil Sterig, a gangster who was recently gunned down. And this is the only part of the story where the line of, of him having a master plan seems to come into play. He goes to speak to a gangster and that's, that's when he gets, he gets, he gets money. Basically it's, it's, he's extorting him for money. And at first I was really into it because this was the second person that he's impersonated who has died. And this is the second time that a character is just flabbergasted about seeing him. And I just like the idea of him taking on the identities of the dead. I I think that's clever. And, Granted, he does change his personality and his, 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 it, I feel like there's, there's more off the page in this, in this story, really, because he is taking on the personas and the mannerisms, I assume, of these characters that he 
has he's he's changing into their faces it's as if he knows their backstory like he goes and he speaks to this gangster and he talks about how yeah you left me in the river i had to deliver deliver something for you i delivered it for you now i need my money and all that stuff it's i don't i don't imagine that uh the inner workings of the gang the gangster lifestyle and everything were in that newspaper article i don't know i mean i granted obviously there's some prep time involved but uh before the timeline of the episode and everything. So maybe I'm just picking nits here, but it's just, I don't, I don't know. I just wish that the episode would have explored uh, it a little more, uh, like his plan a little more, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, What I appreciated about him taking on the identities of the dead, despite him um, taking on their mannerisms and everything is that the shock of seeing him, would would either way make the people talking to him ignore any idiosyncrasies that he has. And I think that would have been an interesting angle to play that there was really no need for him to take on the personality traits of the people and that maybe they could have played with that and explored that a little bit more too. But this scene is fine. He, he gets to have some fun. He, uh, gets the gets the money from the gangster and then he there's an exciting foot chase and i mean it's fun it's it's fun it's suspenseful it brings it's brings some good suspense to the mystery of what he's planning basically and i love the irony of what happens next because he's forced to change into a face that's on a poster next to him to evade capture from these gangsters and it just happens to be the son of the man working at the newsstand outside of the alley that he's in. In this scene with Peter Bracco, where he's he's playing Mr. Marshak, he's he's recognizing his son. I just his performance is astounding. I absolutely love the way that he brings so much power to the performance and such emotion to it because he's he's slowly like he's he plays it as a shocked uh, reaction to seeing his son, and then it just devolves into this raw anger and emotion and it just it's kind of haunting the way that at the end of it when after he's pushed him down and walks away uh mr marshak just says look at andy marshak look at the monster look at my son i think that that is just really powerful and it sets the stage for the ending very well and initially i had a problem with the way that he panics trying to think of a face when he's being chased by the gangsters um my, my my gut reaction is why not just use his normal face shouldn't he be able to just transition into his normal face but then again they don't really explore a lot in this episode or they don't really spend a lot of time on the minutia of this of this superpower or of uh, or of the character relationships or anything in this episode so who's to say that he's i mean he's panicked he's his adrenaline is pumping and uh the opening narration even said that he discovered this skill at an early age so maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't have the memory of his face uh as clear in his mind as anyone else does and plus this is really really all set up for mr marshak holding the holding him at gunpoint at the end of the episode so it's fine it makes sense and it was just a small it just took me out of it on the first viewing just just a little bit and then the scene with the detective in the hotel is Again, it, it's fine, but it's just, 
and maybe maybe again maybe i'm just nitpicking but it just seems like it seems like what they're going for is that this world or this this it's a window into this city and of this uh, this world really where this guy resides and he's a con man and so he's done his prep work and everything so we're just kind of viewing it in this very small window so it's kind of a lived in world and everything just it just doesn't connect with me that well like i kind of wish that it would be like when the detective comes you don't he just says that they want to take him in for questioning he doesn't specify what the case is or, or why he wants to take him into questioning it's just just he just pops up out of nowhere it's not connected to anything else and it makes me i don't know it it just bothers me a little bit i i just wish it was more connected and you can say that it's because maybe it's because he's a con man and, you know, obviously he has a reputation. And then my response with that to that would be, why sign his name in in the log for the hotel? Why don't just give a fake name? I, I don't know. It's, again, it's minor complaints. And I don't know. It's just, it's just minor complaints. I did, I, I got a small kick out of, uh, out of him tricking the detective in the revolving door i thought that that was kind of it was silly really but it, i mean it was kind of a little bit i guess clever would be would be the word for it eh, maybe maybe just shy of clever it was just it was a little silly and i don't know it was enjoyable to me and then that brings us to our climax of the episode where he's gunned down by uh Marshak's dad which i that i really I liked that. That tied the episode together pretty well, and I I don't have any qualms about that. And it played back onto the, uh, or called back to earlier when he was, was struggling to concentrate when his adrenaline was flowing. So, yeah, it it, it was good. It, I kind of wish that I kind of wish that they would have tied it back at the end to the girlfriend of the musician somehow, or or done some justice to the. Uh, master plan to destroy lives part of the opening narration. So I don't know. I'll get to that in a second though. As for cultural subtext or the theme of the episode, um, I really didn't pick up on, on much subtext in this episode to be quite honest. It's possible that I completely missed something. I'm, I've been known to do that in the past. So at the end of the day, I just think that the four of us are dying is an interesting story about a con man getting his comeuppance, really. The irony of him changing into the boxer's face so close to where the disgruntled father of the boxer works is amusing to me, but I, I don't actually find fault in it in that. I've, <laughs> I've picked a lot of nits in this episode and, and, and in this review. But I don't find fault in the irony of that. I think that the irony is simply the work of the Twilight Zone itself or some other cosmic or supernatural force. And since Arch's ability is the only fantastical part of the story, I mean, there's room for that kind of interpretation. And maybe I'm reading into it or this is my own personal interpretation of it, but I say that the Twilight Zone wanted to rid itself of Arch Hammer <laughs> and orchestrated a series of events that led to his death. And I like that interpretation. But on the other, other on the other hand, the episode doesn't really give much to be inferred into it, and the episode really doesn't doesn't deliver on the promise of Arch having a quote master plan to destroy some lives. I I don't know. It just kind of colors the episode in disappointment for me. 
Um, I've watched the episode a few times, like I said, and can't really understand why Arch goes after the musician's girlfriend um, other than lust. And really, his plan boils down to just getting money from the gangsters and then absconding to Chicago with a dead man's girlfriend. And that's fine. But to say it's a master plan to destroy some lives, to me, it, that implies some type of revenge tale. And that's just not what we get. And it kind of kind of made me, left me wanting. Um, but viewing it without those expectations, The Four of Us Are Dying is a pretty solid episode. As I said, it's an interesting story about a con man getting his comeuppance in the Twilight Zone. But aside from that, there isn't much for me to latch on to. Um, I'm not rooting for Arch to succeed. In fact, I'm not sure exactly what he's planning most of the time. And at the end of the day, I appreciate the irony that drives the climax of the story. And I think the directorial choices that were made were, were to my liking. But other than that, I didn't find much else of note in the episode. Except for Marshak's, Mr. Marshak's performance, uh, or his, his character arc, really. Uh, he really, the actor really sold, sold that character well and performed it well. And, I mean, really, that was the high point of the episode for me. So overall, I I liked it. I thought it was I thought it was okay. Just wasn't much for me to really dig my teeth into. If you have a different interpretation of it, or if you have a different, or if there's something I'm missing out of it, please feel free to email me Matt at obsessiveviewer dot com and let me know what you think of this episode because I would love to have a new perspective to watch it in. Um, I've got some trivia about the episode for you guys. So the characters of Hammer, Foster, Sterig, and Marshak, they had all been planned to be performed by one actor using different makeup, but the production crew actually uh, came to the realization <laughs> that the actor's time wearing makeup and, and time in makeup would actually exceed that of him being in front of the camera. So that's how they decided to use four different actors for the episode. And uh, the hotel, the the hotel real sign in front of Archhammer's hotel is an MGM prop. It was originally used in a Mexican street setting in their 1953 film, 1953 film "Take the High Ground," starring Richard Widmark and Carl Malden. And also, I forgot to mention this in my review, but it was kind of weird that once they, once the camera pans to the hotel real sign, it just immediately jumps to just a static shot for like a few frames. And it's, it's a little jarring and a little weird. And the concept for the episode, having a character with four similar, but different looking faces, uh, actually made casting a big challenge. Like, like I said, they thought that they were going to, that they, they thought they could use one actor, uh, and have the makeup change his appearance, but that was impossible. So the alternative was to call in men with dark hair and brown eyes uh, for casting. And here's actually a quote from Millie Gus, Millie Gussie, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's from uh, from the Syracuse Post Standard in December 1959. So here's a quote: They were all told to dress alike, dark suits, ties, white shirts. I'm sure they all thought they were going to a wedding. When they arrived, we immediately eliminated two of them because of their light eyes. 
and then we change the interviewing procedure we usually follow. It's our custom to interview each individually. This time, we lined them up in chairs against one wall and allowed them to ask us questions like, what's the story about, or why will four of us be needed for one role? After the questioning period ended, we knew the four who were similar enough in drive and ability to play the roles. So I thought that, that was just a really clever way to go about casting this episode and a clever solution to uh, what could have been potentially a nightmare of casting. <laughs> all right, so that's all I got for The Four of Us Are Dying. And before we move on to my bonus review for the episode, here's a highlight from the 160th episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com doing his Batman thing and uh, then they have the big fight I I feel like one more in between there would have been good for establishing uh, a little bit more disdain between Mm -hmm. the two yeah yeah Yeah. so agreed like basically we just got the weigh in and the match like they they needed more yeah yeah yeah. more just more conflict throughout it and nice sports right yeah I've seen Creed (laughs) 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 even your sports reference is a movie reference right (laughs) Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find the episode used in this promo at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV160. Okay, so my bonus review for this episode is 1976's Logan's Run. It's a science fiction classic, really, that I've never seen, and I really was excited to have an excuse to see it now. Um, just for reference, I rented it from the Google Play Store for $2.99, um, so that's where you can find it if, if you're having trouble finding it. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I hope not, at least, because I spent $2 on it, $3 on it. Um <laughs> So this is this movie is interesting. It's uh starts with the title card saying that sometime in the 23rd century the survivors the survivors of war, overpopulation and pollution are living in a great domed city sealed away from the forgotten world outside. Here in an ecologically balanced world, mankind lives only for pleasure, freed by the servo mechanisms which provide everything. There's just one catch. Life must end at 30 unless reborn in the fiery ritual of Carousel. So its connection to The Four of Us Are Dying is that the book, the novel, Logan's Run, which was published originally published in 1967, was co-written by George Clayton Johnson, who wrote the short story that was the basis for The Four of Us Are Dying, and William F. Nolan. So that's the connection there. And uh, it's also interesting an interesting pseudo connection that Rod Serling had originally written for the, for the Twilight Zone. Like the original pilot for the Twilight Zone was a, was a story called the happy place that described a society where people were executed when they turned 60 years old. And I don't think that was ever filmed. I know it wasn't ever filmed, but I would love to read that. I wonder if that's available anywhere. Um, I don't believe it was filmed anyway. Music for the for the movie is one thing that really stood out to me. It's uh, by Jerry Goldsmith, and just there's this electronic sound. I know hardly anything about music, but there's an electronic kind of synthy sound that's that's really really um, good background for background noise for the for the for the world that they're building in this in this movie, and I. 
there's some really cool shots, establishing shots of the city. And I, I mean, I assume that they're, that they use miniatures for it because it's, it's massive. It's really impressive how they did it or how it, how it's portrayed on screen. It's a little dated, but I mean, that's, that's to be expected, I guess. I just, I just loved how little they had to explain the rules of this world and this mythology and everything, because you're introduced to Michael York as Logan and his friend Francis, who they're what they call Sandmen, who they basically go and eliminate people who are running. Like they're called runners, people that don't want to die at 30. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that that was, I thought that that was, uh, an interesting introduction to it and a good, easy way to introduce us to this world. And we're shown a depiction of carousel, which is this ritualistic thing that's supposed to mean rebirth and people are being reborn in this. And it's pretty obvious that it's not really the case. And it's just, it just really goes to show the level of indoctrination and, and, just how into this universe people are or into these rituals in this world and the society that the people are. And it made me kind of question, I didn't know much about the actual plot. So it made me kind of question how Logan, like what, what was going to be Logan's breaking point? Like what was, cause I knew that it was about, it's, I mean, the title of the movie is Logan's run. So I was wondering if it would just be self-preservation or if there was something that changed his view of everything and that's not really the case. It's actually interesting. There's kind of an undercover kind of thing that he's that he's assigned basically to to do this to find um, this underground society basically. And I won't go into too much detail about it because this is going to be a brief review and everything. So it my expectations of it. I I didn't really have. I mean, I had some expectations for it, but they weren't really that high. But I enjoyed it for the most part. There were some some parts of it that were just so weird and out there and almost like a psychedelic kind of vibe. Kind of it was it was weird. Like there's this long um interlude where there's there's they're in this kind of hedonistic or this this like this like dark clubby sex area that's that Logan's running through that's it's just it's just weird and it's just off putting. It kinda of took me out of it. And then Earlier, like in the first like fifteen minutes of the movie, Logan and Francis are they're chasing a runner, and there's something about the, I I think I think they they were taunt they, I mean they were clearly taunting the runner, but it's just it's weird because it cuts from, um the runner to just just tight shots of their faces each saying I think they said run runner, and it's just it's really weird they have such looks of they have such gleeful expressions on their face and it's, it was really kind of weird and jarring. I think the, imp- I think the intention was that it was going to, that is supposed to show how, how ingrained in this or how much joy they get out of their job and how ingrained into this mythology they are and everything. But I just, I kind of chalked it up to possibly poor directing or poor editing. It was just, it was, it was just weird for me. So as the movie progresses, it, it, I mean, it gets, it got better for me. I, I enjoyed what it was doing and there's, there's a kind of a, I don't want to, I don't want to give it away, but in, in the, about two quarters of the, or two quarters, um, <laughs> about three quarters through the movie, there is a development where they reach a destination. That's when that's when the movie kind of really clicked with me. It kind of had a a little bit of a Planet of the Apes vibe to it. 
and I really, really loved the set design and, and the the way that they interacted with certain elements in this new environment. It was just kind of awe, awe-inspiring. It really kind of elevated the movie for me because it made me realize just how well they had established the mythology and the universe and, and the world in the, in this story um, by doing so uh, so little, really. In so little screen time, they had developed this entire world, this entire society, and then when they reach a certain point, when they when they gain some insight, it's I mean it's it's just kind of mind blowing. It's so honest and authentic um, the way that they respond to certain things and certain characters that they meet. Um, there's a character that's introduced late in the movie who plays a very pivotal role um, in, in the ending. And there's some certain elements to the character that would p- potentially require just a little bit of quirk from the actor. But I feel like the actor kind of went a little bit too quirky for me, but it's a minor nitpick. Um, by the end, the, like I won't say what happens because I want to keep these um, bonus reviews kind of spoiler free for people to check out the stuff that I review here. But the ending was just really kind of powerful to me. It, uh, it really made me appreciate the movie more and, and it really kind of tied it together for me. There's a very cathartic moment and the very kind of powerful scene where I won't, I won't give away what it is, but, but there's a very powerful scene at the end that, that the movie ends on. And it's, it really made me reflect on what I'd seen. And, uh, yeah, that's I mean that's that's about all I've got on Logan's Run. It was kind of uh kind of interesting and kind of funny and kind of alarming to uh see this movie at this time in my life because right now I'm 29 and here in about a month and a half I'm going to turn 30. So that was that was interesting to see a movie about people that die when they're 30. But <laughs> uh and that was kind of a kind of kind of a running subtext throughout the throughout the movie is life ends at 30 in this society and the kind of subtext of that is that youth ends at 30 and 30s when you kind of get your stuff together and all that and i mean i hope so we'll see in a month but it was good it was good not quite what i was expecting and some elements of it were very satisfying while others were a little bit hard to take in i feel like i will gain I feel like I will get a much better appreciation for it when I see it again at some point. However, it was just a little bit dated and a little bizarre. And I'll end this bonus segment on this, but it was actually the, it was actually Logan's run. That was the inspiration for one of my favorite episodes of community. Um, I think it was season five, uh, the app development episode. I can't remember the exact title, but the episode is the meow meow. Wow. Meow meow beans episode where the school is consumed by this app where you rate people. And the episode devolved into kind of a Logan's Run type of story with diff- with similar uh, set design and stuff like that. So, And, and it followed the Logan's Run aesthetic. So check that out if you haven't seen it already. It's on, I think, Season 5 is on, on Hulu. And uh, yeah, that about does it for this, this week's episode of Anthology. Uh, this is Episode 8. And you can check the um, show notes for more information on where you can find all the other stuff that I do online. And if you want to see the full show notes, like if your app that you're using to listen to this doesn't have hyperlinks or or whatever, you can go to anthologypod.com slash 008. 
and that goes for every other episode of the podcast. It's uh, episode or anthologypod.com slash whatever the number of the episode is. So um, having said that, thank you for listening. Next week, I'm going to be reviewing episode 14 of season one of The Twilight Zone. It's uh, Third from the Sun, which I, I'm really looking forward to. And I'm also, as a bonus to that, and I'm, I'm also very excited for this, I'm going to be reviewing uh, Now is Tomorrow, which is a 1958 pilot episode for a sci-fi anthology series that never aired. It was written by Richard Matheson. You can find it in its entirety. In there, I think there's one or two or maybe three different parts of it, but you can find it on YouTube. I'll put the links in the show notes on this uh, on this page. So check out your app or go to anthologypod.com slash 008 for the links to that. But I'm really looking forward to it. I, I don't know what to expect, but hopefully it's good and worth uh, podcasting about. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or you can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out The Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.